All right, good afternoon. It's great to be with you all. Uh, I arrived in Madison yesterday, and it's been just lovely. I was also with Covenant Presbyterian this morning. Yesterday I toured downtown. It was quite busy with the farmer's market, and I was walking counterclockwise with everyone. Right? I told them the only way you can do it. Went up top, state capital, saw everything too late. So it's really quite lovely. I do hear that uh, everyone kept saying, so I'm from Atlanta, or Decatur, right next to Atlanta. And so many people who I met kept saying, you must have brought weather with you. I guess this is unusual, this kind of weather here in Madison for the 1st of October. But uh, I'm here, I'm going to preach from, thank you for the scripture reading, Amos chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5. So I do think we've got it here. So I'm not the first preacher to preach from Amos chapter 5, verse 24. In fact, it is a very famous scripture passage that is used in big public events. The last time I can trace it was used, as you can see on the screen there, was five years ago, when 29 million people in this country and over 2 billion people worldwide were watching the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The preacher, or the officiant, was from the United States, the presiding Bishop Michael Curry of the Episcopal Church. And he chose Amos chapter 5, verse 24, as his scripture, as he officiated the ceremony in Windsor Castle, when he shared about the power of redemptive love and its potential to change the world. Bishop Curry invited the royal couple, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, along with billions watching on TVs, computers, more likely smartphones and tablets, all over the world to imagine what homes and families and neighborhoods and communities can look like when, in Bishop Curry's words, love is the way. Quote, but love is the way that no child will go to bed hungry in this world again. But love is the way we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. But love is the way poverty will become history. But love is the way the earth will be a sanctuary. Bishop Curry understood that morning that he was preaching to two audiences, the 600 or, 600 or so persons at the wedding in Windsor Castle. Although since we've learned, perhaps not all 600 were in a celebratory mood that morning from different documentaries, podcasts, and memoirs, but Bishop Curry also understood that he was preaching to billions all over the world. 55 years before Bishop Curry in the summer of 1963, a 34-year-old Black Baptist minister from Atlanta also referred to Amos chapter 5, verse 24. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. evoked the verse in his address to over 200,000 people during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. As he stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. King challenged all Americans to remember the promises of freedom and equality that then U.S. President Abraham Lincoln had ushered in with the Emancipation Proclamation. 100 years had passed, but African Americans remained, in Dr. King's words, crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Dr. King implored his fellow citizens to acknowledge these injustices and to enact changes to end them. He noted that critics often asked what it would take for him and other participants in the civil rights movement to be satisfied. Mark, what will it take for y'all to be satisfied? 
Dr. King responded that they would not relent and they would not stop and they would not quit until African Americans had equal access to voting, employment, education, and public facilities. Dr. King concluded in this part of his address, quote, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Just as Dr. King was speaking to two audiences, the marchers women in D.C. and the larger American public, the message of Amos is meant for both its immediate viewers and the wider inhabitants across the northern kingdom in the 8th century BCE. Israelites then lived in a milieu of robust public worship with elaborate rituals and extravagant festivals. They therefore anticipated and celebrated the day of the Lord as the ultimate moment when they believed that God would grant them victory over all their enemies. This phrase, day of the Lord, only occurs in prophetic texts, and its appearance in Amos is likely its first and earliest appearance. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, is thus an utterly staggering message that actually catches this immediate audience off guard. It's not what they expected to the prophet reverses expectations and warns that the day of the Lord will not be a celebratory moment, but instead it will be a calamitous reckoning, because these worshipers will have to account for their sins. What sins? In verse 11 in this chapter, the sins of economic exploitation of small farmers. In verse 12, callous disregard for the poor. Amos compares the day of the Lord to two frightening, but I think actually somewhat humorous situations. So when I imagine this as a children's story. I'm telling a story to a kid and I say, imagine a person is in a forest or a jungle or a village or some wild place where there are lots of different animals. And this person is running away from a lion, running away from a lion and thinks it's safe and then pops out of nowhere, a bear pops out. What kind of kid story is this? And then this person has successfully escaped both the lion and the bear. Where in the world do lions and bears hang out in the same neighborhood? But escape the lion, escape the bear, and then finds a place to rest, finds a place of refuge, finds some shelter, leads the hand against the wall, and then not lion, not the bear, but gets bitten by a snake. What a bummer. This is a miserable children's story. Or perhaps for some kids, they're like, now this is the kind of kid story, irony, I like it. <laughs> but Amos then turns from these uh, hypothetical situations to the heart of his message here. Why the water, wider audience across Israel must grapple with God's anger and God's indictments. Amos observes that too many Israelites are practicing insincere and incomplete religion that disconnects civic morality from public worship. In fact, in verse 21, uh, the use of two different Hebrew verbs there, to hate and to despise. To hate in the Hebrew is saneh, to despise in the Hebrew is ma'as. Now, different English translations translate these verbs in different ways, but they do use two different verbs for hate, hate and despise, to note that there are two different Hebrew verbs going on there. Although I will note, thinking earlier, hearing about someone wanting to go to Stockholm, sometimes to use the same word multiple times can also have a good effect. Haters gotta hate, 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 hate. <laughs> so he just could have done that there and not use two different verbs, but he just could have said sane, 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 over and over again. But instead, Amos uses these two different verbs to underscore 
God's fierce displeasure with hollow outward piety. God rejects seven, seven aspects of public worship in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, for material offerings and melodious songs. The use of the number seven is employed often throughout scripture to signify completion. It is in Genesis chapter 2, seven days. In Leviticus chapter 25, the seventh year is the Sabbath year. In Revelation chapter 8, there are seven apocalyptic seals. Here, there are seven things that God announces, which signifies that God is truly displeased with what is happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. In more contemporary parlance, I can think of two words that evoke God's holy anger. Roughly 10 years ago, some of you may know, some of you may not, there were these two comedians and actors. Uh, I think Amy Poehler is known for a lot more stuff than what she did on Saturday Night Live. But they were there, and they were the co-hosts of this segment called Weekend Update on SNL. And they often did a segment called Really with Seth and Amy, in which they offered incredulous commentary on current events with their sarcastic use of the word really. They reunited one year ago on Seth Meyers' late night talk show to remark on the emerging big business of space travel with Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and others. Seth began, quote, really billionaires, this is what you're going to do with the unprecedented fortunes and influence. Race to outer space. Amy continued, quote, you know who's not going to space? Any woman, really? Yeah, we're staying down here because we gotta fix all the things, end quote. In addition to really, another even more contemporary word, I think, I'm not that, but I, I'm not that hip, I'm not that contemporary, but what I am is, I am the parent of two teens who are once tweens. They are now 15 and 12, and I've often heard this word, <laughs> Any parent of a tween or teen, such as me, has received this word audibly and in numerous text messages from their children. The best way this parent can explain the word bruh is I think it is kind of like a young person. It has multiple usages, but one of them is, is the young person's synonym of really. Like, so when I hear my kids bruh, my teacher assigned me three free response essays this week. Y'all remember that in high school, in college, and then, or it's like bruh from my younger kid who's 12. The internet went out at my house for like two hours last night, and I was so bored. So that's kind of use of run. It's partly because he couldn't play this Valorant game that he plays all the time on his computer. Um, but, uh, oh, did somebody know? I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I miss the days of Dan TDM and Minecraft. Oh, it was so simple. But my kid was there. Well, he's doing all these other games, and I worry a little bit because I don't see the pixels and it's just a good thing. Oh, yeah, you're in the back. Anyway, you're in bedrock, or anyways, but it's different now. It's quite it's bewildering for this parent to figure out what his 12 year old teen is doing on his computer. But now, returning from really in front of the ancient Near Eastern context of Amos 5, I do think that Christians don't need to interpret God's fury as like a once for all condemnation of all public and congregational and corporate worship, like what we do now. I do think one common theme across the prophetic literature is God desires faithful living alongside faithful worship. You can see I have a few examples there. One from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. 
People of God, learn to do what is right. Seek justice and defend the oppressed. In Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in Micah 6, 8, it is to act justly, love mercy, mercy and walk humbly with God. So therefore, here in Amos 5, 24, justice and righteousness are not presented as alternatives. Instead of worship, instead of songs, you should do this and that. But it is saying, in addition to the songs that you're singing, in addition to the worship services that you're having, pay just as much attention to what is happening in your world. Pay just as much attention to the societal inequities that are happening all around you. The other, I like the, I'm going to use this, the equivalent, ooh, you noted that when you talked about the fall retreat, I think, you heard a big woo, but then he called you into account. He says, I know what the registration looks like. Your woo is actually more like woo based on what I'm seeing on the Google or whatever file. In the same way, God is saying here, in your worship services, it's a big woo, but in your life beyond worship, it's kind of like a little woo. You're not doing what you're saying you're going to do. You're not doing what you're singing. You're not doing what you're praying. And so, this is what's going on. There's another verse later in Matthew. I'm going to be in Matthew 55 in a second. It's, uh, it's another kind of one of those famous verses. It's Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Many of us might remember it and know it in actually the King James Version. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What I know there is that it says seek first the kingdom of God. But oftentimes in my life, although I know the verse, I'm more like, I'm going to seek second the kingdom of God. Because i got other stuff i got to do. Or I'm going to seek third the kingdom of God. Or seek fourth. Or probably more realistically in the 2020s, it is more I'm going to check my Google calendar to see what I can fit it in. Ooh, next Thursday, 3 o'clock p.m. I think I can do it then. But I have a hard stop at 3.30. Something like that. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, the prophet utilizes vivid, beautiful, yet actually commonplace and familiar agrarian imagery for an ancient characteristic audience. Rushing rivers and surging streams, they get it when Amos says, this is where justice and righteousness ought to be. Because these images of water are simultaneously life-giving and just necessary for farmers. We need to tend fields and grow crops. Even today, I did a little bit of homework. I don't know a lot about this great state of Wisconsin, but one thing it seems to really count is its agriculture. So perhaps the images of water, of rushing rivers and surfing streams, are resonating in this great state. Yet, then and now, the message is the same. The worshipers of God are being confronted. The sacred songs that you sing must, not maybe, but must lead to defending the oppressed, caring for the earth, and actively working to construct a better world for not just some, for all to flourish. As Christians, we believe that the entirety of the Bible teaches us that we don't do that. We don't seek justice, we don't seek righteousness in order to earn God's salvation. Rather, we do so as the grateful response to the gift of God in Jesus Christ that has been given to us. We're taught that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and therefore we are already God's peacemakers. We are already God's children, blessed when we do good and extend mercy as the hands and feet of Christ. Yet, the teachings in Amos 5 and Matthew 5 also remind us of the gospel paradox. 
that God's call is also God's challenge, that God's promises are also God's demands. The gospel brings comfort when we are afflicted, that it also brings affliction when we are too comfortable. In the Puritan prayer, the Valley of Vision, it actually begins with the proclamation that our Lord Jesus is simultaneously high and holy as well as meek and lowly, and invites God's children to learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, and the valley, not the mountaintop, is the place of vision. In the Psalms, the word thirst is used at least twice in Psalms 42 and 63 when describing how the human soul seeks after God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches the large crowd that has gathered before him that they are to hunger and thirst for righteousness with the same pains that they we feel when our stomachs are empty and our mouths are dry. When God calls us to be a beloved community, God challenges us to drive out the sins and injustices that prevent the rivers of justice and streams of righteousness from rolling down. Dr. King's call for racial equality, his dream that on one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the children of former slaves and the children of former slave owners will be able to sit down together, is also a challenge for us to confront the histories, legacies, and present-day realities of discrimination in our city and our nation. And I'll close with this analogy that I use sometimes at my seminary. So I teach at a seminary uh, where we have students that come from all over the country and all over the world. And some of them are a little bit, I don't want to say they're suspicious, but the communities of faith where they, where they come from, they're a little bit suspicious that my seminary is kind of too progressive, too liberal a place uh, for them. Is this a seminary where faith grows or a cemetery where faith comes to die? And I say, no, this is a seminary. And in part, they're kind of suspicious about the notion of liberation theology that comes from theologians such as Gustavo Gutierrez, James Cohn, Katie Geneva Tennant, and others. And what I've answered, how I answer that question is, what liberation and theology and what God's call for justice and righteousness, what it teaches me is this scenario. If I leave a bakery with two loaves of bread, and on my way home, I encounter a person who has no bread and who is hungry and is looking for bread for this person and their family. What does God call me to do in that moment? In that moment, God calls me to give one of my loaves of bread. Likely because I can get more bread to give both of my loaves of bread to this person. But what God also challenges me to ask is, why doesn't this person have bread in the first place? What are the structures and systems and laws and policies and histories and legacies that are preventing this person from having access to daily bread, from having access to clean water, from having access to the honor and dignity of a fair wage and a good job to provide for that person and their family? And this too is God's call to me. This is what it means for me to see liberation. This is what it means for me to try to defend the oppressed. It is in that moment to give that person bread, but then it is to think, act, mobilize, and work towards figuring out how to dismantle these systems that are preventing people from getting bread in the first place. And this too is the call for all of us here at the University of Wisconsin and all across the country and world, that God is calling us to be motivated by God's love. I'll end with Bishop Curry, he said that love is the way poverty will become history. For us, it is true, and love is the way we can be a more faithful neighbor. 
And love is the way we can welcome the stranger. And love is the way we can help to heal the brokenhearted. And love is the way our dreams of justice and righteousness can come true. So that we too can get on board with it rolling down like waters and flowing like a never-ending stream. I'm grateful to be with y'all. I hope that wasn't too long. Probably it was. It's okay. Um, uh, so that's, man, I didn't end the sermon very well, but that's the end of the sermon. Uh, man,